This is Coffee Break with New York Wiki. I'm your host, Julie Hockheiser Ilkovich. We're here today with Marissa Ronka. Marissa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us what your job is? I am the EVP and Head of Programming and Development for True TV. That sounds awesome. We can't wait to hear more about it. Just to start, we want to talk about coffee, always starting with talking sure. about coffee. What is your coffee drink of choice? Tall Americano Splash of Milk. That's it? That's it. Simple. Very simple. Very <laughs> delicious. And do you drink it every day, every morning? I drink one every morning. That's good. Very restrained. Just one a day. I can't over-caffeinate. It's just too much. There's too much <laughs> happening in the world right now. I don't need caffeine. Too much caffeine on top of it. It's dangerous. It's dangerous <laughs> naturally, times. Naturally caffeinated. I'd love to have you tell us about your career from the beginning. Where did you start? What were the steps that you took to get you to this job at True TV that you're in today? Sure. In a nutshell, I went to Syracuse University. I majored in communications with a focus on TV, radio, and film. I knew that that was what I wanted to do. I actually had a focus on sound design and editing, and I think this is a very unusual thing for a woman, actually. I'm probably one of the only women you'll meet who has a fully sound credit. I started in college doing fully sound effects on Discovery Channel documentaries, which back then were blue chip and beautiful and amazing, and I wanted to move to D.C., and work for the Discovery Channel, and I envisioned myself making documentaries that would change the world, and I would win an Academy Award, all by the <laughs> age of 30. Um, what, what actually did happen was uh, I moved to D.C. I started off working two jobs. I clawed my way into a post-production house, and I was the manager of the tape library. Back when there were big tape libraries, I checked the tapes in and out for Discovery Channel shows, um, at night, I was a sound mixer, and basically, I worked my way up. I went from the tape library job to seeing a coordinator job posted at Discovery. I applied for and got that job, and then I was kind of working within Discovery Communications proper. From there, I applied and got a job as an associate producer and met uh, who someone who would become a mentor to me and who I'd worked with for the next basically eight years of my career. He left Discovery to go and produce shows, and I said, listen, I have all these show ideas. If I write up some treatments and give them to you and you go out and pitch them, can I quit this job and come and produce the shows? He said, sure, I think thinking it would never happen, and in the first pitch meeting he had with HDTV, he sold one of my ideas, so I quit. I went out, I wrote and produced the pilot, and then uh, there were 70 episodes after that, and we made many shows together out as producers, and after that, I came back into Discovery, got a job as a director, left Discovery when True TV called me. This was about 10 years ago, and uh, they were Court TV at the time. They were calling, looking for a director of development. I said, I'm not really interested in court programming. And uh, they called a second time and said, look, we're going to rebrand. We're going to try something new. And that was a very exciting proposition. And also they were going to move me to New York City, which was my dream to live in New York. So I took them up on it, uh, came here 10 years ago. And from there, uh, I've been here. And I have just have worked my way up now to overseeing all of programming and development. Wow. Can you tell us what that HGTV show was? Small Space, Big Style. Cool. Yes, it was. And, you know, there's still different versions of that show on now. I know Tiny House Nation. I'm not saying that that's from our show, but I'm saying that show was around first on HGTV. Uh, and that was a great experience and a real learning experience. That was the first show I ever produced and wrote. I didn't have any experience to do it, but you figure it out. 
right? It's not brain surgery. You just figure it out and you do it. So, um, yeah. And that first job at the tape library, when you went there, did it feel like your dream job or did it seem like starting in the mailroom? It was starting in the mailroom, but for me, it was super exciting. It wasn't my dream job, but it was, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania. I wasn't raised with any kind of concept of the entertainment industry, of ever being able to work in the entertainment industry. I didn't know anybody in the entertainment industry. So it was the first job I got on my own in the field that I wanted to be in. So I was very proud of myself and very excited about the job. And it didn't pay a lot, but I had benefits. I had all the things you get that you're very excited about for the first time out of college. So I was really proud of it. Um, but it was starting at the bottom. Yeah. It's amazing also to major in something specific and then just be able to jump right kind of into that career. Yeah. I think it was, I think it was lucky. And I think, you know, looking back on it, I think there's a couple of things that allowed that transition to happen like that. One was I didn't go right to New York and LA. I went to DC. DC is not the same as New York and LA in terms of competitiveness and in terms, you know, of how many people apply to get entry level jobs here. It's crazy. It's crazy. That's not the same in DC. It's a little bit of a smaller community. So with persistence, I think I was able to get in there faster than I might have been able to in New York or LA. Great. You've worked at big companies and you've worked your way up. So you've definitely been in meetings and had to ask for raises and promotions and had those difficult conversations that so many of us struggle with. What's a way you asked for a raise that actually worked? And, you know, did you feel like you were asking based on time? Was it based on merit? What was the approach? I think that the key to asking for a raise is, number one, you have to ask. The worst that they can say is no. And two, you have to be self-aware enough to know kind of your role within the organization, within the department, the value that you bring, and knowing the value of that job. So one story that stands out to me, and actually I talk about this a lot because it was really instrumental in my career, was I think I was a, a VP and I was getting ready to sign a new contract. And I was so excited. I mean, again, it's a privilege and it's exciting to work in this industry. So they offered me a new contract. They gave me a very sizable salary increase. And I was thrilled. I had never asked for more money before in my career. So, you know, I was already either at a senior director or a VP level. So I was talking to a friend within the company who will remain anonymous. <laughs> and I was talking about how excited I was. And I feel so privileged to work here. And I was getting ready to sign the contract. And my friend said, you know, I think you should ask for more money. And I was like, what? They're never going to give me more money. And he said, listen, I think you should ask for X amount more. And it was substantial. And I said, no way I can ask for that. And he literally went, ugh, why are women like this? <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? He's like, that is the value of the job that you're doing. Just ask respectfully. So I went back and I said, listen, I'm so excited to work here. I love this job. I'm going to kill myself to be a great employee and keep over delivering. Um, I feel that the job is valued at this amount and I think I should be closer to that amount. The company came back. They said, oh, we can't believe you would ask for this money. Um, we're not going to give you that money. But they automatically went up halfway. Met right? you in the middle. They met you in the they middle. They met me in the middle, right? So had I not asked, I wouldn't have gotten that. So I went back to my friend and I said, this is amazing. You know, I can't believe it. They went up to this amount. Thank you so much. 
uh, I'm ready to sign. And he was like, I think you should hold and you should ask once more respectfully. And I did, and they paid every cent of it without blinking an eye. And, and I truly believe there's a lot to be learned from this because this is about, this contributes to the wage gap. Us not knowing the value mm -hmm. of the position that we're in. You know, I wasn't over asking. I was asking for what everyone else was getting paid. I think we often don't know those metrics. So through promotion to promotion to promotion, we fall behind. It creates a gap, not necessarily because everyone's trying to pay us less, though that's certainly part of it, but also because we aren't asking and we don't know competitively what we're worth. And we're always just so darn happy to be wanted in these roles. Since then, that's really changed a lot of the way in which I negotiate. But again, it always has to come from a respectful place. Mm -hmm. I always try to make it about, I am so happy to be here. This is the perfect job for me. And I always try to come from an informed place. And I find that that makes those negotiations and those difficult conversations much easier. And I think what is so hard for particularly women, but probably many more people to wrap their heads around is just like the worst thing that will happen is they will say no. They'll and just say no. Yeah. I mean, you said that before and most likely they won't. At least they won't say no. They may not say yes, but they will meet you somewhere in the middle. Absolutely. And I will say this, uh, you know, I manage a pretty large department and even younger men in entry-level jobs, uh, they almost always ask for more money right off of the bat. I have more senior-level women uh, that don't. So it really is just something to be mindful of. What do you think is really the reason for just beyond not thinking that monetarily you're worth it? Is it a reason? Confidence. Is there a reason? Confidence. Confidence and worrying about people disliking you. Because nobody wants to feel like they're being abrasive or they're going to be disliked. I don't want to feel that way. I don't want to feel like in a negotiation people think I'm being too tough or bitchy. But those aren't adjectives that get described for everybody, right? So if you do it in the right way, though, it won't come across that way and you'll still get what you want. Mm -hmm. You just have to be a little more, uh, just a little more thoughtful about it. And it really speaks to something we talk about on this podcast sometimes about not taking things personally in the workplace, just removing yourself from like, I mean, I, yes, you care if people like you, you see your coworkers probably more than you see your own family. So it's hard to say like, oh, who cares if they like you? Of course you do. But if you can remove that kind of, you know, they're going to like you anyway. This has nothing to do with it. If you can remove that emotion from it, I think that will make, be a huge help. Agree. Totally agree. You manage a lot of people in this role. How many people are you managing directly? Well, I only manage five people directly, but there's about 30 people in the department, so they're kind of in teams underneath mm -hmm. those five people. And what are some things you've learned from people coming to you asking for raises or, you know, their managers coming to you because they've been asked for raises? What are some of the do's and don'ts you've learned from real-life experiences that you've had? I think it's so much about self-awareness or lack thereof. I mean, look, you want to retain high potential, highly talented people. Talent is huge in the landscape we're in right now. You want your best people to stay. And when those people come and respectfully ask to be recognized, it, it, you know, I think we try to recognize them always financially, but if they aren't, you, you want to get them there to a place they're going to be comfortable with, they're going to feel motivated, and they're going to feel like they're being paid competitively for the work that they're doing. 
You also have people that would seem over the years I'm talking to have no self-awareness of actually what they are or more likely aren't contributing to the group or whether they're succeeding or failing. And those are the real head scratchers when they come in because you think, how could you possibly be in here now asking me for more money when you're not even nearly meeting the requirements? Right, you're not the minimum. <laughs> and now this conversation has taken an awkward turn, right? So it's so much about self-awareness um, of your role and your value and and be, keeping your eyes open about it even when you may not be getting the answer back that you want to see. You know, just because you're not succeeding in an environment doesn't mean that you're not a talented person. These environments are changing, shifting places. Content is changing. We've changed. Since I've been here twice, we've rebranded. You know, not everybody can do everything. So it's just being aware, I think. And when you come and ask for the raise, sort of knowing where you stand and how much you can push, um, you know, based on what you know about your 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 contribution. And what would you recommend in terms of preparation? So when these people are coming to these conversations, like there has to be some level of preparation to, you know, show your manager what you've been doing. What kind of things could someone listening to this podcast who wants to go into a raise actively do to prepare for that conversation? I think what's good is to come in and not just show how you're meeting the requirements of the position you're in. Sure, everyone is, that's a baseline. Everyone's supposed to do that. Everyone needs to do that. That's what justifies your role. What you need to do is show how you've taken initiative and gone above and beyond, you know? So, hey, I, you know, I love the job. I, I feel like I've really got the basics down and I really wanted more challenges. So I started volunteering on this. I took an initiative on this. I changed the database on this. I asked so-and-so if I could help them with this because I want to learn about live TV. And you start to see that they are going above and beyond and sort of bursting out of that role. And those people are incredibly valuable. They take initiatives. They're go-getters. And I think you need to come in with some of that not just say, reward me for doing the basic job and I'll do so much more in the future. Right. Or like, I've been here for five years doing this job. The time does not matter yeah. for most places. It doesn't matter how long you've been there if you aren't still bringing great added value to the department. Mm -hmm. um, we have people that have been here for a very long time. You have people that come in in a short time and just raise the bar on the quality of work, bring in a new skill set that we didn't have, up the level of talent we're working with, of you know skills that we have. That's going to become something we can't live without. And in corporate and executive television and in these roles, you know, you need to have people that you just can't, you know, that you can't live without that are <laughs> instrumental to the day in, day out success of the department and the network as a whole. In your career, you've worked a day job and also done a gig in the evening, had other jobs on the side. How do you manage your time effectively with a full-time job and a side project? I think when you're young, especially when I was in my 20s, you just work your ass off. That is it. You know, this is not a business that is always based on the best person getting ahead or the person with the best ideas because, again, it's not brain surgery. We didn't go to college for 10 years to learn a skill that no one else has. You have to outwork everybody else and bring good ideas to the table and be a person people want to work with. There's a lot of skills involved. So I would say in my 20s, you know, not only was I working those two jobs, but 
I produced a short film that made it into a festival, and that was like a huge thrill for me at the time. I worked on a scripted feature film called The Guatemalan Handshake that a friend of mine wrote and directed that made it to many, many festivals. You're testing a lot of different waters. You're working with a lot of different people. You're developing relationships, and you're figuring out where those relationships and where that work may take you. So I consider myself lucky because in the end, though I had these aspirations to make a Academy Award winning documentary, I think I realized very quickly I don't have the goods to do it. I don't have the talent to be on that side of the camera to tell that story. When I got a chance to work at a network, though it's perhaps a less sexy position to be in, I realized that this job really, these jobs really play to my strengths. And that's where you're always going to want to lean yourself. So my advice would be, you know, if you have a side project and that is your passion, the second that you get any kind of traction on it where you see yourself being able to make that a viable career path or way to live, you need to let go of the day job and just go for it. You know, we are living in a time where like there is no such thing as playing it safe. So the second you feel like you can do it and it's viable, you got to go for it. And we have had many people here do that. Um, I had an assistant who was fantastic, who uh, I went to give him a promotion, and he said, actually, I don't want to be an executive. I've been writing scripts and screenplays and spec scripts at night, and I entered a contest, and I won it, and I got an agent, and I'm going to just try and leave and do that. And it's amazing. And wow. we are constantly talking. He sold a script that was made into a movie. You know, we've had other people leave here to become teachers. Someone else had started a fitness business on the side, and it got to the point where he had to leap and go for it. And so the second that you can do it, if that's your passion, you got to go. Because when it gets to that point, the work in the day job, it just starts to erode. Mm -hmm. You yeah. cannot give your all to something if your heart isn't in it anymore. So you can only hide that for so long until people know you're phoning it in. Right. And you kind of just have a sense of when it's going to be okay. I think that's the question a lot of people have is like when to make that jump because it's like for financial stability and just it's very nerve wracking. But I really, I had the experience when I started my own business. Like other people I've talked to, you just know. You just know. I and know. you have to just dive into it. You know, and the more you think about it, I think, and particularly the older you get, the more afraid you may get of taking that chance. Not always, but sometimes real life situations will arise mm -hmm. that will make it difficult to make those decisions. Whether you decide to marry, or you move, or you have children, like, it gets harder and harder. Right. So it's, you know, you have to just seize the day when the moment is right and go for it. So you haven't really started a new job in, like, 10 years, Right, like you. Not in a new place, but okay. I have had multiple jobs here. Multiple roles within changed, the organization. Yes. So, if you get a promotion or start an entirely new job or start a new job within the same company, but when you take it, you're feeling really overwhelmed or feeling not ready. What should you do? That's how everybody feels. <laughs> That's universally how everybody feels. You should not worry about it. You should. Not maybe come out guns blazing. I think that's a mistake people make when they get into a new role. You should get in there, listen, learn, be thoughtful, and just know that transitioning into a new job or into a promotion is difficult for everyone at every level. Um, for me, I was promoted last year and I went through the exact same thing. It's hard to let go of skills and roles and responsibilities that got you that promotion because that's your comfort zone. 
and now take on a new set of duties and leave the things that you like doing to other people. And that is just the growing pains that go with any kind of career advancement. It's totally fine. It's totally normal. You need to delegate, and it's all the more reason why you need smart, strong, number twos, great people in your department who you trust to take on the things that you now must leave behind. You have no choice. If you continue to do those same things and just add more work on top of it, it will kill you. It will absolutely kill you. So it's a normal transition period. I had the same thing last year, and you just fake it till you figure it out. <laughs> that's, a, that's a recurring theme on the show. Get in there and get the job done. Ask questions, figure it out, work hard, and you will know what to do. You know, it's just takes a beat. Nobody can get in there and just know everything right away. And if you come in with that attitude, I don't think it's a good look. One thing you mentioned that I think is really interesting and we don't talk that much about around promotions and new jobs is like giving up the stuff you like, especially as you move up and, you know, in this world when you, I mean, I would say especially when you become a middle manager, like when you go from being a more creative to a management position, like that is a really tough transition. We talk about taking on new responsibilities, but giving up the jobs that you like, the tasks that you like, that's, that's hard. It's hard. You know, I have basically a pure development background. I, I love getting in there with the ideas. I love taking pitches. I love meeting with people and agents and creators and noodling around these ideas and kicking them around until you come up with that right show. And I really pride myself on that, and I have for many years of my career. In the role I'm in now, I hardly do any of that because I have amazing people on this team who I've worked with for a long time and it's their jobs to be out there beating the bushes and finding the ideas and bringing the ideas in and getting the credit for those ideas. And I have other responsibilities to do that are different. Not all of them are my favorite. A lot of things become more managerial. They do become more business associated with the business or the bigger picture. But there is a lot of joy to be had in them as well, and especially in seeing your team thrive doing stuff that you were doing not that long ago. Mm-hmm. It's all sort of part of the evolution of a career and the evolution of your job. And I think management, on honestly, is a very underrated, under-discussed, critical piece of anybody being successful anywhere, and um, especially in creative roles. I don't think nearly enough training is put into making great people managers. I don't think enough people put time and effort into being great managers and really... At the end of the day, that is almost the most important piece of the entire puzzle Mm -hmm. because not only does it make your work environment great, it helps contribute to culture, it helps contribute to other people having success in their careers, um, and it takes a lot of work. It is draining, but it's worth it. It just takes a lot of effort, and no one ever really talks about it. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's a huge lack in management training. You know, we had a guest who worked at Facebook, and at Facebook and Instagram, they're two tracks basically you can be a manager or you can choose to essentially be like an independent employee and never have to manage and the idea is like some people don't want to be managers some people are not good managers and by insisting the only way that their careers grow is that they manage they end up failing often so you don't necessarily never get promoted because you don't want to be a manager it's just you know a different way of thinking which is really interesting because some people like management is tough it's really tough it's really hard. I, I do think that, you know, more training would definitely help. 
I mean, being a great leader and being part of a great team is really, for me, what makes coming to work every day so fun. You, you know, and I've had different kinds of managers, good and bad. Uh, and I think that you're right. It's not for everybody, but it's important within a structure like mm-hmm. this that oh, you yeah. must do it versus maybe other places where there are other tracks. And that's interesting to hear because if you're not a people manager, then probably someplace like this may not be for you. You know, right. it's essential here, or is it may not be essential at other places. And then that's something that you need to think about when you're analyzing your own career trajectory, your own strengths and weaknesses, knowing that you don't enjoy it or that you don't think you're good at it, or you're not comfortable with it. Think about how can you move yourself to a place that's not going to be required of you. Because it absolutely is here, whether you want it or not, if you want to move up. Yeah, and I have had people in corporate settings who worked for me who were like, I don't ever want to be a manager, and then they just feel stuck. Like there's no trajectory. So it's really interesting. I think it'll change a bit, just like the nature. But but in traditional media companies, that is just how it is. And that's not going to change anytime in the near future. So management training would really be helpful and just – you know, paying attention to the fact that managers are important and those skills are important. And you have to look for the information yourself. This might be kind of a horrible story, but when I first became, I was hired at TLC. You can decide what to do with it. (laughs) I was hired at TLC and I was a director of development and uh, I went in on the first day and my boss said, listen, we're about to go through a big change. All these people sitting out here, um, they're going to report to you and you're going to have to let them go. This was on my first day on the job. Oh I wasn't even 30 years old yet. I hadn't even really managed people. He said, like, oh, have you managed people? I said, no, not really. He was like, you're going to have to let them go. So you can imagine stepping into this, the anxiety and the drama, and I sat out there with them. And basically, as a network, it was turning over, and we had to go through this change. It was very painful. It was very difficult and horrible to think about. But during that time... Uh, my husband, who was so kind, he got me all these books, you know, about management and this and and tips. And there were so many things in there. It sounds really hokey to say it, but that helped me to get through a very difficult time and try to do with empathy and respect for everybody and also to keep my head held high every day because it's difficult. And I think that things that I learned there kind of in the trench of that bad situation have helped me go through two rebrands at this network and continue to try to treat people with respect, empathy, and communicate with them so there's never any surprises when it comes to kind of doing the more difficult things in management. But you have to look for some of that information yourself. It is is so much of it is out there. Mm -hmm. Just to reinforce your gut feeling or decisions that you're making or ways that you think you should or shouldn't be handling a situation, it's helpful. It's such a good point that you don't have to just, like, learn it in the field, which is probably the worst way to do it. The one thing that always stayed with me from that time, because I I was young and and I was in charge of a lot of people and people were very upset about it. A lot of people were older than me. And I know this is a situation that happens to many people in many fields. But the one thing that I read that has always stayed with me and which I've imparted to other people was you never have to justify, nor should you never justify to anybody why you're the boss. The second you do that, you lose you're not the boss anymore. Right, you lose your power. You're, I don't power might be the wrong Power's word, but, the you're, wrong word, but right. you're not the boss anymore. Your authority, right? because like you are just trying to justify something. Through time, you know that helped me because what I wanted to say was, no, give me a chance. You're gonna really like me. Right. Working with me is great. We're gonna be great friends, right? But you can't say all that. You can't do that. You can't say these are my accomplishments. I've done all these things, right? I've taken all these risks. Right. Nobody wants to hear it. 
over time, we didn't ultimately let everyone go. We kept a lot of them, and many of those people became great friends of mine that are still friends to this day. So it is just a matter of kind of weathering in the storm in a way that you know when you're on the other side of it will people will look at you and know that that it was handled in the a difficult situation was handled in the best way possible mm-hmm. and you will earn you will earn the respect and the role from them yeah it's treating management like a job i mean it's not that big of an idea but i really think most people do not do it it's like something that just is annoying about their it's a lot of work job rather it's than really being a responsibility lot of work. yeah yeah i mean look, people are a lot of work. We're complicated. We're all different. It's not easy. There's no one size fits all kind of conversation you can have with somebody about their goals, their dreams, their aspirations, their weaknesses, areas of improvement. You know, it's draining. It's hard. Um, So it needs work, but the upside of making it work is, you know, it's it's beyond like something that's quantifiable. It's great. Mm -hmm. And it will really help you be successful in your career. I come from a magazine background and it was just it's particularly difficult there because people come into magazines to be like writers, and then when they become managers, it's like they're not. Usually, they have too. no. These yeah. are producers, right? Like they never thought. I never thought that I would be managing people. Like it's also something maybe that you can be. Anyone can become good at it, but you just have to work. Right, at you it. have to work at it. But usually, it's just like oh, you just manage these people to do it, rather than like here's the job, here's what yeah. you have to do. You need training. We love to ask our guests what we call classically annoying interview questions. So. Okay. Questions that you get at a job interview that don't necessarily reflect on your actual, like, you actually being good for the job, but if we get into them, you'll kind of see what I mean, but are kind of tricky questions that you've probably asked candidates yourself. Um, they're like, what you're supposed to ask in an interview, but we're trying to get to the bottom of why people are asking them and also getting answers from people who have been, especially in executive roles for a long time and haven't had to do a job interview in a long time, what they would say and why they think these are good questions. So do you want my real answers or answers I've given a job interview if I was lying to get a job? Let's go with lying first. Okay. Let's do lying first and then we'll do real. I think we should, I think we should do both. Cause I would love to hear, I would love to hear both of them. So the first one is a really typical one. What's your biggest weakness? I can be impatient because I just am so efficient and I like to get things done. I get frustrated when they can't happen smoothly and fast enough. That was good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My real answer is I'm riddled with insecurities like everybody else. <laughs> And, and I'm constantly wondering what my value is and if I'm doing a good job. That also <laughs> might be a good yeah. job. <laughs> I think that might also be a good answer because that's very relatable. Like, you're just like, for the person who's interviewing you, though. Oh, yeah, me too. We get along great. Too much information. <laughs> I would love for you to give that answer just and start crying. <laughs> so good. But it is funny because, you know, we all know that question is like, it's a trick, but what if you really did say your biggest weakness? It would, it would could really spiral. <laughs> I would like you to know that I don't ask that question. I do ask other annoying questions. Which ones? Do you, can you think of them? <gasps> what are your least favorite parts of the job you have now and why? You know, because you're trying to find out. You only have one hour to try to figure out what this person is all about. And everyone, of course, is putting on their best face right. forward. And so you're just trying to understand if you can through troubles or stresses or things that they don't like a little bit about their character. 
So I think that's why you ask about weaknesses, even though you know it's a lie. Or that's why I ask, like, what don't you like about your job? Because mm -hmm. it's an uncomfortable thing to answer because you want to say, oh, it's great. I, I love everything, right? But um, I guess that's why everyone goes there. We're trying to see. Right. We're trying to see what this person is about. Well, if you love everything, why are you leaving it? Right, exactly. <laughs> like, if it's yeah. so perfect, yeah. well, it's actually good advice. If you're even. good at everything, or where you know strengths and weaknesses. What do you think you're best at in that job, and what do you think you you could do better? You know, and that's like that's universal. Right. I'm a better developer than I am a producer, and I'm not afraid to say that. It doesn't mean that I can't do both. But there's people in this department that would produce circles around me. They know what they're doing. They have lived and breathed that more than me. But on the development front, that is, you know, my area of strength. And there's nothing wrong with saying that that's, you know, I think that's what you're digging for. Right. And it's like awareness, awareness of your weakness. Yeah. I would say self-awareness, I think. Again, like it's just to show that you are somewhat self-aware in an interview. If you're like, I'm perfect. Yeah. You're like, no I'm one's just perfect. just too cool. Right? <laughs> it's like, no, that's not, that's not. I'm just so organized. <laughs> it really, it's ruining my life. <laughs> This is another good one. Where do you see yourself five years from now? I mean, I feel like this is a very pointed question when people ask this, but, you know, what's what's your interview answer and what's your real answer? My interview answer would be, and partially this is my real answer, I'm honestly not sure because everything is changing so fast right now. You know, this is where I see myself right now in this role in five years things could be so different media platforms could be so different I honestly don't know um, my real answer for me and this is honest and true right now is I do feel like I love the work we're doing at true I truly do feel like I have my dream job right now I'm not trying to be Pollyanna about it what I would love in five years would be for the only thing that could make this better for me because I love the content I love the people I love the company would be if this network was able to be, if this turned into an over-the-top channel or uh, was able to be pushed out in a new way, new distribution platform to people. Other than that, I think I've got it about as good as you can get right now. That's great. And realistic. I mean, that's going to be, you know, the direction. I hope. Most likely. <laughs> that, would be, that would be amazing. We also ask these, we call them curveball questions or they're questions, you know, a lot of companies and probably based on the conversation we're having, a lot of companies are asking these kind of random questions, things you couldn't prepare for, and also that show your creativity. I mean, those are probably the key reasons that they're asking these questions in an interview. And so we, I mean, we just have seen so many totally interesting, crazy questions that people are getting asked that they're definitely not prepared for. So this is a question I brought today. It's if you were interviewing for a job at Airbnb, a question they ask in interviews is how lucky are you and why? Well, what's the scale? <laughs> is it one to That's ten? That's why it's so funny. One to how lucky are you? <laughs> Very. I mean, I guess, yeah, because luck is so quantifiable, but I consider myself pretty lucky, actually. I think I have been lucky, and I think I've also made lucky moments work for myself. I think I've also found luck. So if all that is added up into the luck equation, I would consider myself like pretty high on the luck spectrum. I wonder is that scientific. <laughs> I wonder if it's a trick question where you're supposed to be like, it's not luck. It's hard work. You're probably right. <laughs> I just you're probably that. right. It, it's gonna be like there's no such thing as luck. You make I, you make your own luck. I worked like my that. ass off and I got here. That's why. I wonder if that's working for Airbnb. I'd love to know. I would love to know. You should try it. Just see what people, I'm like, what are people saying it? There's not even, it's not even like, how lucky are you? 
what is the metric of success for luck? You see, my insecurity about asking that question would be that once they leave, they would go to people like you and be like, this woman just asked me this ridiculous question. And I put it on a podcast. And now it's on a podcast. So... And you would be right because it made it to a podcast. So sorry, Airbnb, but we we've we're bringing it to the people. We have reached our lightning round. I'm going to ask you a few questions. Just say the first thing that comes to your head. Exciting! This is exciting. Here we go. Don't be nervous. Best job you've ever had. This one. Worst job you've ever had. A waitress at a sports bar in college. And why was it bad? I just had, that's not lightning. Every piece of that sentence <laughs> should describe it to you. Best career advice that you've ever received? Two pieces. Don't be afraid to ask. And also, people are lo- loyal to people. Companies are not loyal to people. That's a good one. That is like advice 101. <laughs> it's so good. It's very basic. Someone told it to me early on when I was trying to make a decision between a company that I wanted to work for or going with a manager that I loved. And someone said that to me and it really resonated. And it really paid off, by the way. And it's also like if you work at a lot of big companies, I mean, it's really easy to get so, 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 so invested. I've worked at a couple of big corporations and I love working for them, but it is like something to, to keep in mind. <laughs> Just keep it in mind. It's the relationships. What's the worst career advice you've ever received? Someone once told me that I would never get ahead unless I wore heels, like really hot heels into every meeting. What? And if I went into a meeting without heels on, they would basically not listen to me and they would say, are those your buying and selling shoes? Are those shoes that you think are going to get you able to sell the show you want to sell right now? And I would change shoes before I went in. Oh my God. They ruined you. (laughs) I have to look at your shoes. They're they're boots. They're boots. And they're not that high Uh, heels. I, I, yeah, that seems like a terrible story to tell, but it's true. Well, it sounds pretty old fashioned also. It's very old fashioned. (laughs) But still, it's just like, also to say that to someone, and that's in their head always. So it's like you're going to start quantifying your success based on your shoes. Like, oh, I didn't do well because I. I have a few nice pair of shoes. I have three nice pair of shoes. I keep them all right there in that drawer, and I wear them around the office when I need them, but I don't ever wear them anywhere else. (laughs) And since I finally worked my way up to this job, I'm comfy to wear boots and flats whenever I like. But yes, I think that's terrible advice. What's your most memorable office moment? It could be positive. It could be negative. What's a time in the office that you just could never forget? Two things come to mind, one good, one bad. One was taking the pitch for Impractical Jokers took that pitch by myself, and then called some colleagues in the room to see it. The guys were there. It was just one of the funniest things I've ever sat through of all the pitches that I've taken. Uh, I have a negative one that I can never forget, which was I had just moved to New York City and only been working at True TV for a short amount of time when the pipe bomb, uh, it wasn't a bomb, when the pipe exploded outside of Grand Central Station. And I just didn't know New York. I was new in New York. The building that we were in was shaking, and we had to evacuate and all run for our lives, and I just had no idea where to go. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know what was happening, Um, and I ended up meeting up with one person I knew from the office, and we made it into a bar and just spent the afternoon in there drinking, so... (laughs) But uh, oh at the God. time, I'll never forget it, only because I just thought, oh, God, here I am in New York, and now, now what's, what's happening? Just a classic New York City story of explosions <laughs> and running for your life. Just pretty. Just, the first panic you feel is really, there's nothing like it. It's like, but you're like, but since then, I've had like a hundred panicky moments. Yeah, so. I mean, we've evacuated here a couple times. It's never been that high-level panic, because that first oh time really God. gets you. I really think, woo, uh-huh. this is too much. <laughs> what's the most exciting thing happening 
at your job, at your company right now? What's something you can share with us that's just really making you excited to come to work every day? Two years ago, we rebranded True TV from a reality channel into the comedy brand that it is now. And I think that this has been the most exhilarating, exciting ride uh, that I've had just creatively, professionally, the people that we are working with and the creators that we're working with. You know, we switched from... Uh, being a brand that was derivative and downscale and uh, though it was successful, those types of shows had kind of run their course. So I feel extremely lucky that when Chris Lynn came in as the president of the network and we started talking about what we could do with this brand, we had Impractical Jokers on the air. It was an outlier. It was the only real comedy show that we had on. And to be able to pivot the network to be now working with people like Amy Sedaris, Billy Eichner, Adam Conover, uh, John Glazer, real comedians with a comedic point of view, with something to say, and these people are creators. Each one of their shows are their babies, their passion projects, and to be a part of supporting those projects and bringing them to life with the amazing talent that we have here at the network is unbelievably fun and challenging and rewarding, and it feels very much like a scrappy startup we're all in the trench together making it happen. So, you know, not only has the outward facing network changed, but we've gone through a lot of transitions here. As we've changed content, we've had to change as well how we run the business. And at this point, I think we've really changed the culture of the network. And I think if you talk to anybody here, I feel confident that they would say it's a really great place to work and a great group of people, very inclusive. And I hope that in the future, we will all look back on this time here and say, you know, working at True TV during that time was one of the most exciting times of my career. So exciting. Thank you. And now finally, you're going to see the results to get more women and more diversity on the air. And it is hard as hell. Mm Because let me tell you something. They do not have representation. You cannot find them at the agencies. I mean, we've called every agency asking, you know, a guy makes four funny tweets and suddenly has a manager, right? Right, like who are your diverse women? And they're like, they don't exist. They don't exist. I mean, it's very hard to to find women that are on the right track being groomed and helped in the right way to get into these jobs. It took us a long time to find to find female talent and people of color who were at the place in their career where a show about them from their point right. of view makes sense, right? It's very challenging. Um, and that's coming from a group of women of which even last year, you know, we were riding the Hillary year out. We were like, this is it. We have to do it. We still couldn't. Finally this year, we will have that stuff. But it was really hard. Marissa, thank you so much for your time. This thank has been you. so fun. You've been given such amazing advice. Where can our listeners find you? Where can they follow you? Where can they follow the network to learn more about True TV? They can and should absolutely follow True TV on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, and not only the network, but also all of our talent have their own, you know, uh, social media. Um, and everybody is welcome to follow me on Instagram, but I think you'll be very let down. It's mostly pictures of me, my family, my birthday, my vacations, but hey, you're, you're welcome. You're welcome to see it. But otherwise, I think True TV and our, our talent who are on the air are the ones to follow. They're funny. Uh, and they'll make it a lot more entertaining for your feed every day. What's your Instagram handle if we do want to follow your personal adventures? If you care about my personal adventures, you are welcome to follow me on Instagram. It's M-I-S-S-M-R. M-I-S-S-M-R. Well, thanks again, Marissa. You've been listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. Thank you to our amazing team. Our producers, Kylie Harris, Chelsea Orcutt, and Chrisanne Grise. 
Our editors, Aaron Mathewson and Chelsea Orcutt. Rachel Bowie manages marketing. Alex Fetter wrote the theme. Additional recording and editing has been done at Stoosh Studios with the help of Steve Francis. For more information about Coffee Break with New York Wiki, go to nywici.org slash podcast. I'm your host, Julie Hockheiser-Ilkovich. Thank you for listening.